As I was studying for the passage today, studying the passage today that we're going to look at, there were three three quotes that came to my mind. The first is from a, a modern preacher, a guy named Francis Chan. And he was preaching about the greatness and the power of God, and he made this statement. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words cannot contain Him. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? Another quote that came to my mind was from the the great reformer Martin Luther. During the Reformation, Martin Luther exchanged letters with a Roman Catholic monk named Erasmus. Um, And Erasmus opposed the Reformation and and many of the ideals that Luther was promoting through that. And it's my understanding that they had been friends before the Reformation. So they wrote letters to each other, each trying to convince the other that they were right. And in one of Martin Luther's letters, he said to Erasmus, Your thoughts of God are far too human. And then the third quote is, is lengthy. But it comes from my heroes of the faith, a guy named A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he, deep in his heart, conceives God to be like. And here's the part that's really important. We tend by a secret law of the soul... To move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian. But in the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church. Is her idea about God. Now in light of what Tozer said. About our moving toward our idea of what God is like. What does your life demonstrate? Your idea of God is like. Does your idea demonstrate that God is so great that He cannot be exaggerated? That His power is such that no matter how great you imagine it to be, there's always more. Or, does your life demonstrate that your thoughts about God are far too human? My goal today, in the passage we're going to look at, is to purge our minds of any thoughts about God that are far too human so that we can revel in the greatness and the power of a God who cannot be exaggerated. Open your Bible to Ephesians 3, verse 20. Uh, and when you find that, I'm just going to stand on the reading of God's Word. It's page 896 if you have a pew Bible. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout the ages, world without end. Amen. title of the message this morning is God is able. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are... 
great and awesome you are. Able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. Father, that is a, an enormous statement. And something that, that we have heard so many times in our life. Father, it is possible that we have heard this verse so many times. That just the, what it's saying has lost its wow in our lives. That we are not amazed by that statement. Father, when that happens... Our thoughts of you do become far too human. Guide us today as we look at this passage. Father, we would take your word and it would sink deep into our hearts. And it would change who we are and how we live. Lord, that we would understand that our God is great and he does whatever he wants. And no one or nothing can oppose him. That we would know that our God reigns. And because we know that our God is awesome. That our God is all powerful. That our God reigns. That we would live differently because of that. That Lord, that these truths would not just be things that we said or words we used to encourage other. But Lord, it would form the foundation of how we live and what we do in our lives. We need you to elevate our view of you. Kill within us any thoughts of you that are far too human. Kill within us any thoughts of you that make you less than you truly are. Cleanse us and cleanse our minds and renew them. Give us a a picture of you and your glory and your power that we would say our God is able to do all things. Fill me with your spirit as I preach this morning. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way. To what you want said or what you want done. Have your way in all of our lives. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now the last two verses of Ephesians 3 are what's called a doxology. And according to the omniscient Google, a doxology is a liturgical formula of praise to God. And, And that's technically correct. One of my commentaries gave a better explanation of it. Commentator said a doxology is a word of glory about God. I like that. In these two verses, Paul exalts the majestic and awesome God for the purpose of inspiring praise to God and faith in God. Right. So as we read these two verses, there's to be a, a response in us. Something within our hearts is to well up and say, man, my God is awesome. And it would come out of our mouths that we would praise God, but also that it would strengthen and increase our faith in God. And faith, as we know, it's seen. It's seen in our actions. So as we read what this says and we study what it says about the great power of God, it is not only meant to to lift our hearts and lift our voices, but it's meant to change our lives. We are to live differently because we serve a God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Right? And there's two actions that, that we're gonna, we need to take in light of this word of glory about God. Right? The first is, we just have to believe. Right? We have to believe God's power. This is simple, but it is an understated truth. We must, when we read what the Bible says about God, we must take that at face value and say, yes. Absolutely, that is what God 
is like. And of course the picture that Paul is painting, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine, is that if we were to sit down and imagine the biggest thing that we could think of that God could do, what would be the biggest, most powerful, amazing thing that God could do to demonstrate His power? And we were to pray that and ask God to do it, God's response would be, I can do more. Right? There is no limit to God's power. There is no limit to what God can do. God is always bigger than what we make Him out to be in our minds. We, in our finite minds, cannot fully fathom the greatness of God's power. God's power cannot be exhausted. He is so great and so powerful that as Francis Chan says, we cannot exaggerate His greatness, His majesty, or His powerful. Now, everything around us, everything in our world wars against the idea of a big God who can do big things. Everything in the world around us testifies and tries to convince us that either God is dead, that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't care, or that God is not active, or that God is small and unable to do big things. And we have to fight against that. We have to find ways to push back against what the world tells us our God is like. Because make no mistake, the world, the unbelieving world, will never have a right thought about God. Like an unbeliever will never write a treatise about the character and the nature of God that will be right. The unbelieving world will never produce a movie about God that testifies about what God is really like. We cannot go to the world and say, tell me, what is God like? Let me read your books. Let me read your articles. Let me hear your thoughts because their thoughts will be wrong. Scripture says that man in its wisdom will never find God. When Peter made his confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus' response to him was, Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. We cannot go to the world and find out how big our God is, for the world will do everything it can to squash our faith in a big God who can do big things. Instead, we must go to Scripture and let Scripture renew our minds and change our thought patterns. We must go to things that the Bible says and we must read them and we must believe them. Right, now, aside from Ephesians 3.20, let me just give you three general places to read so that you can see just the, some of the ways the Bible pictures the great power of God. Right, read the creation account. Read creation is, I mean, this is one of the main ways that the world attacks the power of God today, that God did not create, that everything just sort of happened by chance and circumstance. But Scripture doesn't take that perspective. Scripture always starts with the fact that God created. Old and New Testament both continually tell us that God is the creator of everything that is. And, and the best place, one of the best places to read creation and to see God's power is in Genesis 1 and 2. Right, the in the beginning, right? In the picture, in the beginning, God created, right? There was nothing. There was just like God. God has always existed. He was always there. And then and then God decided other things needed to exist. 
And that's, that's kind of what Genesis 1 tells us. God's like, I think there needs to be stuff. And so he began to create stuff. But not only did he create stuff, he created the stuff out of nothing. Right? There, there was no pre-existent stuff that God used to make all that there is. In a lot of the, the ancient historic or the ancient creation myths that exist out there that people say, see, every culture had a creation account. Most of those accounts, those gods that created everything, they started with stuff. Like in, in one count, there were two gods, a male and a female, and the female died, and the male used the body of the female to create the earth. Right? And so he created, but he had stuff. But God didn't. There was nothing. There was just God. And God created. But not only did God create the stuff out of nothing, the Bible teaches us a very particular way that God created. Does anybody remember what the Bible says about how God created the world? There's an oft-repeated formula throughout Genesis 1. And it goes like this. God said, and there was. That's... That is the way God created the heavens and the earth. He just, he just spoke and it happened. But I've underlined all those repetitions in my Bible because when you see a repetition, particularly in a passage, that's God emphasizing something. God is emphasizing to us in Genesis 1 that He is the Creator who simply spoke the world into existence. He's emphasizing His power. I mean, did God strain to create the world. No, he did not. Did creating all that exists require a great deal of effort from God? No, it didn't. God didn't strain. It didn't require a great deal of effort. Creating everything was as simple for God as God saying, I think there ought to be something. Let it be. And it was. How great is the power of our God that he can merely speak and things that didn't exist will come into existence just because he, he wills them to be. And no one could stop him. No one could hinder him. No one could oppose him. Is your view of God that big? I mean, can your God just speak and, and, and change everything just because he chooses to do it? Should be. Read the creation account. Read it over and over. Meditate on it. Think upon it. Until you can just almost see in your mind's eye that picture of God speaking things into existence and making it happen. And let that sink into your soul and say, my God is that great. My God is that awesome. Also, read the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus is also... Just a, a testimony to the great power of God. We've been studying Mark on Thursday nights. And, and Mark is possibly my favorite gospel. Because in, in, in all of the gospels, but in Mark particularly, Jesus' power is emphasized. I mean, Jesus, when you read Mark, Jesus is awesome. But I mean, he, he does amazing things. He, he casts out demons. And not with a struggle either. But the demons, they, when Jesus is in a region, the demons are so 
in servitude to Him that they run and they bow before Him and they beg Him for mercy. And when Jesus says it is time for this person to be free of demons, even legions of demons, He just says, come on out of it. There's no struggle. There's no shouting and screaming and sweating and hollering and slobbering. There's just Jesus saying, get out of there. And the demons have to obey. That's how great Jesus is. Jesus, He heals the sick over and over again. Jesus heals the sick. And and He he, he doesn't sweat or strain in that either. Some guys, He just says, be healed. And they're healed. Sometimes he, He makes mud and He puts it on their eyes and He tells them to go wash in a place. Other times he, he touches them when they're leopard, and when his touch, instead of it giving him leprosy, it cures the leprosy. I mean, he just, there's, there's even a, a dead kid. And the mother's weeping because her son is dead. And Jesus says, Don't you get up? See, he's a, a little girl who's died. And he says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And she gets up. They're in a boat crossing a, a, the, a sea. And a storm rises. And these these men who are sailors and have been through these storms, they're afraid. It is so severe, they fear for their lives. And and Jesus, they go and wake Him up and they're like, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? And He gets up and He's like, peace be still. And the storm calms. And they're just like, wow, He's amazing. At one point, He actually walks on top of the water. I mean, he just does it just because he can. He takes five loaves and two fish and he feeds a multitude of people. Not by cutting it up into teeny, teeny, teeny little pieces so that everybody can get just a a, a taste of fish in their mouth and maybe a breadcrumb. He just takes it and breaks it and puts it in the baskets and says, hey, go give this to everybody. And after they take the five loaves and the two fish and they feed the thousands of people, they bring it back and there's baskets of food left over. Just just because He can. And in all of these things, He never exerts Himself. It's never He's never done it and He's like, Woo! I'm tired now. No, he He just does it. I mean, is your view of Jesus that big? If not, read the Gospels. Read Mark. Read it over and over and over again. And when you read it, read it and say, this is true. That really happened. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then also, read the book of Revelation. Now, let me say this about reading Revelation. There are two ways to read the book of Revelation. You can read the book of Revelation looking for all the details. Right? What do the, the seals and the bowls and what about the frog demons and what does that mean? You can read it like that and, and that's a neat study to do and stuff like that. But that's not what I'm recommending here. What I'm recommending here is to read it for the big picture. Because here's the big picture of Revelation. God brings history to a close. That's what, this, that's what Revelation is ultimately about. All of that other stuff, those are just the details along the way. The big picture is that the world goes 
And God decides it's time for the world to end. And so He begins to bring it into judgment. And that's what He does. He starts bringing judgment on the world. And when He determines it's time, He just does it. He causes lightning and thunder to come on the earth. He causes a great big star to fall on the earth. He causes the sun to burn super hot and scorch the people who are rebelling against Him. He causes the weird animal-like things to come upon the earth. God just does it. And no one can oppose Him. Now the Antichrist is a big figure. The devil is at work throughout the book of Revelation. But ultimately the story is not of the devil almost winning. But the story is that God is allowing the devil to have a bit of free reign. I mean, the, the Antichrist rises to power and it looks like he's ruling over the earth. But it's, it's just an illusion. Because the Bible says that this authority was given to him. Well, who gave him this authority? Well, it was God. And then when God decides the Antichrist is, is done, he just deposes him. And he takes the devil and he takes the beast and he takes them and he tosses them into a pit for a thousand years. Not a strain. He doesn't wrestle with them and wrestle them to the ground and drag them over there. And whoo! He just is like, come on. And then when the thousand years is up, he gets out. But he doesn't escape. It's not like after a thousand years, the chain weakened and he pushed it just the right moment and it broke. God lets him out. And there's this big battle. And the forces of evil line up against the forces of Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus destroys them. The words of his mouth. He just, just, that's it. There's no big battle. It's not, whoo, and thankfully, Jesus won. Jesus was always going to win. And then he just takes the devil and he tosses him in the lake of fire. Where he will be tormented forever and ever. And that's, that's awesome. Now, from, from the earth's perspective, which we read Revelation, it looks like the devil is winning and he's having this great power struggle with God and he almost comes up and, and is the victor. But that's not the story. The story is God just does it. God just does it. Right? Revelation isn't the story of Satan's last hurrah. And he almost wins, but whew, God pulls it out at the end. The book of Revelation is the story of how God pours out a measure of His judgment on the world before bringing history to the close and bringing the world, Satan, and the demons into judgment. Is your view of God that big? I mean, do you serve a God who is sovereign over history and nations, circumstances? Because the God of the Bible, He is that powerful. That's who... He is. Nations rise and fall at His command. And if your view of God is not that big, read Revelation. Read it for the big picture. Watch and see the great power of God and meditate on it until you can just almost see God just doing something until He decides it's time to do something else. And let your Faith in the power of God soar as you read these things. If we are to move beyond a view of God that is far too human to a place where God is so great we cannot exaggerate His greatness, we must believe the power of God. 
Because if we can read these accounts, this stuff, and just with a, I mean, just, just a measure of faith that this is true, that this is really what happened, this is really the way it is, how could that not inspire our faith to grow? I mean, if, if God really did speak the world into existence, man, have I ever faced anything in my life that was bigger than stuff needing to come from nothing? No. If I can read the life of Jesus and believe that He really did do those things, that they're not symbolic, they're not metaphorical, He literally cast out demons. He literally multiplied food. He literally healed people. And He really is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is there anything He can't do in my life for me in my life? No. And if my God really can just do the stuff of revelation, wow, wow, There is nothing, nothing in my life that's as cataclysmic as the apocalypse. He can certainly bring a win from anything that would come into my life through His great power. But if I don't believe it, I miss it. Believe God's power. But that leads us to live in light of God's power. See, it's, it's easy enough to say we believe But the true test is in how do we live? Does my life show that I serve a God who creates things out of nothing? Does my life show I I serve a Savior who rose from the dead and healed the sick and cleansed the leper? Does my life show that I serve a God who is sovereign over history, nations, and circumstances? It's, It's supposed to because look at what he goes on to say. Now unto him that is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And notice this last part. This is the part we often miss, I think. According to the power that what? Worketh in us. Now think about that. The exceedingly abundant power of God that can do more than we could ask or imagine, it is already at work in us. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you have been born again through the Spirit and you are indwelt by the Spirit. So so God, through the Holy Spirit, is already making you so that you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or imagine. Because that power is already there. Now think about that. Not only can God do exceedingly abundantly out there somewhere, but that exceeding abundant power, it's at work here in me, in you. And we can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. What can you imagine God could do in you and through you and for you? The biggest thing you could think of, God says, I can do that and more. Now part of what this means is is that since the abundant power of God is already at work in you, you can share the gospel effectively. You can. You can lead someone to Christ. You can find and use your spiritual gifts for the advancement of the kingdom and for the glory of God. You can exhibit the fruit of the Spirit 
all of them. Not just one particular part, but all the fruit of the Spirit. You can conquer your sinful desires. You can live a holy life. You can raise children to love and serve Jesus. You can have a strong and a healthy marriage. You can do far more than you could possibly imagine. But you can't do it because you're great. That's not the point. That's not the point that I'm making. That's the point Paul is making. You can't do this because you're powerful. You can do this because God is great. And because God is powerful. Now, typically, if we're challenged in this way, we can do these things. We, we begin to give reasons why it doesn't apply to us. We begin to say, well, I'm just... That's for like super Christians. I'm just an ordinary believer. And I'm not the kind of person that that they write books about. My, my Christian life is just too normal. No, that, that wouldn't be for me. Or, or we say we're too afraid. Oh, I'm, I'm just not brave. I, I'm really afraid. And I, I just don't think I could. I, I just, I'm just too scared to, to believe that would be for me. Or, or we've made too many mistakes. Oh, you say that, but you don't know what I've done. I mean, in my life, before I came to Jesus, I, I was a wreck. I did some things I'm deeply ashamed of. And even after I came to Jesus, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't have it all together. I, I still don't think I have it all together. I just, no, I, I'm just not a good enough Christian to do this. Or, or we say things like, well, my family. If you knew my family, nobody in my family's ever really lived with Jesus like that. I mean, that's just not... Nobody in our family's ever done like that. And, and, and my, my parents, I mean, I, I love my parents, but they, they were kind of a mess, and they're still kind of a mess. And, and our family name, and we begin to give all of these reasons. Here's why the exceeding abundant power of God is not at work in me. Here's why I can't do more than I could ever ask or imagine. Here's the truth about those things. They're not legitimate reasons. They're excuses. But they're not legitimate reasons. None of these things matter. Because God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or imagine. According to the power that worketh in us. See, because it's not about how ordinary you are. About how extraordinary God is. It's not about how afraid you are. It's about the courage God can give you. It's not about how many mistakes that you've made. It's what God has made you into. It's not about the family you were born into, but it's about the family you were born again into. Let me show you this. This is one of my favorite passages that shows just how great God is. Hebrews 11, Hall of Fame of Faith, what we call it. And it just lists all of these people that are heroes of the faith. And it tells things that they did. Big things, great things, powerful things. Some of them it tells some about, but when we get to the, towards the end of the chapter, 
it, it tells us about several men. It just kind of throws their names out there and moves on. And if we were to look at the list, we're going to look at it just a little bit, we would find some things, that, some characteristics that, that Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel, that they all had in common. One is that they did do, they really did do big things. They, they put armies to flight. They subdued kingdoms. They, they wrought righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They defeated giants. They did big things. They truly, truly did. The second characteristic is that they were all as common, as ordinary, as flawed as you and I. They were ordinary men that had ordinary faults and made ordinary mistakes. And despite how ordinary they were, they served an extraordinary God who used them to do extraordinary things. Gideon was a farmer. And he wasn't exactly brave. And when God told him that He was going to use him to deliver Israel, his response wasn't, yes, finally. It was kind of, what, me? And then he began to explain all the reasons he couldn't do it. He came from a small, uninfluential tribe. He was the, the youngest of his brothers. He, he, he sees an angel of the Lord giving him a vision, or giving him this mission right now. You think, in our minds, we think, if I were to see an angel of the Lord, and he said, go and do, we would just be like, whoop, I'm going. But Gideon is like, okay, okay, here's what we're going to do. I got this fleece. I'm going to set it right here, and I'm going to go to bed. Tonight, make the whole ground around me dry, but the fleece wet. And, and if you do that, I'm going to know you're really from God. So he goes to sleep, he gets up, and he rings out bucket full from the fleece. And he goes, okay, that was neat, and that, but that may have been a coincidence. Tonight we're going to do it the other way. Okay, I'm going to lay it right here, and I'm going to go sleep, and, and I want the fleece dry and the ground wet. And so he wakes up and he does that. And that's the way it is. Can you, I mean, th this is not your superhero of the faith. Ordinary guy. Barak was told that he was supposed to go and deliver Israel, and he was afraid to go by himself. And from the story, the way it appears, that God had already told him, and he wasn't going. He was just flat refusing. And so the, the judge over Israel at the time was a lady named Deborah, and she sends for him, and she comes, and she says, Has the Lord not said that you're supposed to go? And he's like, Fine going. Not unless you go with me. She's like, fine, I'll go too. And so he goes. Again, not an example of courage and strength. Samson. Now Samson did have great power. He was strong. But I mean, we know the story of Samson. Was he what you would call a fully devoted disciple of God? Man, if there is anybody I would consider an Old Testament failure over Saul, it would be Samson. Great strength, great victories, could not for the life of him do anything 
God said to do. Ate honey when he was consecrated as a Nazarite. Ate it from a dead lion, which was all the way against the vows. Kept finding women and doing things with them that he wasn't supposed to do. And yet, there he is. A hero of the faith, according to God. Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. And as the son of a prostitute, he probably didn't have the best upbringing in the world. He also, as he went off to go to battle, he made a vow. And he said, hey God, I know you've called me, I know you've sent me, but here's what I'll do. Just just to kind of make it all line out. If you give me this victory when I come home, I'm going I'm to kill as an offering to you the first thing that comes out of my house. And he goes off and he comes to battle and he comes home and you may remember what comes out. His only daughter. Sorry. Takes him and from what we know, offers her. It's a sacrifice to God. What? What a horrible story. And yet, hero. David. David was clearly chosen of God. But David, when when Samuel came to anoint a king from one of the sons, and they brought them all in there except David. And and he and Samuel was told, No, it's not any of these guys. And he's like, Is this your only one? Oh, is this all of them? His dad, his dad was like, Oh, well, I mean, there's the youngest. He's kind of a ruddy little kid, but it's not him, you don't think. His dad didn't even believe in him enough that it could have been him. And then when he was chosen and began to, to do the things that he did, of course he, he sinned, didn't he? In the height of God's blessing on his life, he, he has everything he could want. And he looks at another man's wife and says, and I want that too. And yet he's a hero of the faith. And then Samuel, the last judge of Israel. Samuel was, a, he did all great things. But Samuel, if you remember his story, Samuel became the judge because Eli before him was poor at what he did. Eli was a terrible parent. Eli had sons that he raised in the temple that did not know the Lord, and yet he put them in positions of leadership in the temple. He knew that they did wicked, wicked things in the house of God, and he did absolutely nothing to restrain them. And so God judged his entire family. Gave the message to Samuel to tell him, I'm going to kill all of you because of how wicked you are, Eli, and how wicked your children are. And then Samuel grows up and his kids are just like Eli's kids. And he puts them in positions of power just like Eli did. He made the mistakes that Eli made. And yet, he's a hero of the faith. But it's not because they did it in spite of themselves. It's that God did it in spite of them. Right? You look at them and they were all terribly inadequate to do what they did. But their adequacy was not based upon them. It was based upon the God who had chosen them for that position. And it's the same with us. 
Sure, the idea of stepping out in faith and try to live in light of the power of God, that may be a fearful thing. That's a normal thing to be afraid. But the excuses that we can give, they are not legitimate reasons to keep us from attempting what God is leading us to do. Because it's not about us. It's not about our adequacy. It's not about our power. It's not about our goodness. It is always about who God is and what God can do. And we have to know that. We have to believe that. And this power, notice what he says. That worketh. That's continuing present tense. This exceeding abundant power of God. It's not that it worked in those people then. But it's gone today. It's not that it worked in the Ephesians then, but it's not for today. It is at work now. The same power that empowered Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel, that same power is at work in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And whatever God is leading you to do, you can do because God is greater than your flaws, your family, your sins, your mistakes, your fears. God is adequate where you and I are not. That's why Daniel says that those who know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Our lives are kind of meant to be an adventure for Jesus. We are meant to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We are meant to do exploits for Jesus. Now they won't all be subduing kingdoms and obtaining promises and stopping the mouths of lions. But I mean, how cool would that be? But that's not what we're all going to do. But we're all meant to do something. We're all meant to do something that only God can do. Something so when it's over, people will look at that and they won't say, well, look at how great they are. They will say, I know him. Man, God must have done that because there's just no way he could have done it. We are all meant to be strong in the Lord and live in light of his power and do exploits. But before we can be strong and do exploits, we must believe what scripture says about God. It's true. We must expect that that power will be at work in us. Expect it will happen. And then we have to do something. We have to put ourselves in a position where if God doesn't come through, we will fail. We must step out by faith to a place to do something that requires God's power to do it. So for our key truth, and we'll close, I'm going to paraphrase from William Carey, the founder of Modern Missions. Believe great things about God, expect great things from God, and attempt great things for God. How is your view of God? Is your view of God that He is so great that you cannot exaggerate Him? Is your life bear out that that is your view of God. If not, let's do what's necessary to elevate our view of God. Let it never be said of us, your view of God, your thoughts about God are far too human.
Let's let's bow our heads. And I just want to close a time of response. Always want to give a time of response. I just want to give you some things that God is able to do. God is able to save you. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. God is able to save you. God is able to restore you. If you're a believer but you've strayed, you've wandered far from God, you've been a prodigal son, understand the point of the story was that the father was waiting on the son to return. God is able to restore you. You're not too far gone. God is able to gift you. When you were born again by the Spirit of God, you were given a gift from the Spirit of God. And you are meant to use that gift to extend the kingdom of God for the glory of God. God is able to show you that gift, to empower you to use that gift. God is able to empower you. Whatever it is that we need to do for God, we need His power. We cannot live the Christian life apart from the power of God. God is able to empower us to do it. God is able to heal you. God is able to heal in ways that modern medicine can't. God is still God. God is able to answer your prayer. That burden on your heart. That thing that weighs you down. God is able to take care of that. Let's take a time and and whatever you need God to be able to do, you take this time and you cry out to Him to do it. And then let's leave here living in light of God's power.